Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll and the home of the Duff McKagan joke of the week. Hey, Jericho. Uh, it's Duff McKagan calling. Hope everybody's doing good there. Listen, I was arrested for uh, impersonating a politician today. I mean, I was just sitting there doing nothing. <laughs> Yay! See ya. Duff is back. El Fuego. Love the joke of the week. And Duff for delivering them each and every Friday without fail. Go see Duff and Guns N' Roses this summer if you have the chance. They're playing Welcome to Rockville in Daytona Beach, Florida. That's May 21st. And they're heading to Europe and South America. You don't want to miss the show. It is amazing, amazing stuff. So uh, some of you may know my guest. They also kind of tied in with Guns N' Roses. He's one of their early influences. Talking about uh, Bob Mould. His incredible music career is, is well known. He's a founding member of the 1980s band Husker Du. Uh, or maybe you know him from his prolific solo career as a singer-songwriter. Uh, he has just released a new EP called The Ocean. He's on the road now touring it in support of that and his 2020 critically acclaimed album Blue Hearts. Pick up Bob's new EP and go see him live if you can. BobMold.com, M-O-U-L-D, BobMold.com. But the reason why he's on Talk is Jericho is part of his career that you might not know about, and that's his time working in WCW. Bob started at WCW right after I left in about 1999. He was on the creative team and worked with Dusty Rhodes, Kevin Sullivan, Vince Russo, and Ed Ferrara as well for a short period of time. Bob grew up in upstate New York and has been a lifelong wrestling fan, even did some ring announcing. You'll hear how Bob became friends with legendary promoter Jim Barnett how that led to his job in WCW. Bob's got some great stories about pitching ideas to Hulk Hogan, being part of the WCW War Room, and working with Kevin Nash. Bob talks about some of the guys he felt were overlooked at WCW, some uh, he tried hard to see get pushed. Bob Mould talking all about his time at WCW coming up next. So is Fozzie coming up in a few, about another few days. Uh, the Save the World Tour is back at it Thursday, April 28th playing the Southport Music Hall in New Orleans. Go to FozzyRock.com for all tickets. And then on uh, April 29th, on Friday, Houston, Texas at Warehouse Live. April 30th, San Antonio, Texas at the Rock Box. That's a Saturday night. So many other gigs coming up. Uh, Garden Grove, California on May 6th, which is also when the new Fozzy record Boombox is being uh, released. Pre-order it now wherever you buy or stream music. So many other gigs in California, Nevada, Colorado, Kansas, Arkansas, uh, finishing all off in Saugat, Illinois, St. Louis at Pops. There are tickets available. Go to FozzyRock.com, and there are VIP meet and greets available as well. Uh, go check them out. It's one of the best meet and greets in the biz. Uh, we meet you. We greet you. We do a Q&A. We have a lot of fun. We play five songs, a five-song mini set for you before the show. Go check that out at FozzyRock.com and book your cabin at Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at Sea, the Four Leaf Clover. We are setting sail February 2nd, 2023. We've got a great lineup of talent joining us. For the first time ever, we're going to our own private island, Great Stirrup Key. Come experience the vacation of a lifetime. ChrisJerichoCruise.com. Book your cabin now. All right, let's get to Bob Mould and his time in WCW right here, right now on Talk is Jericho. Here's something that I've always wondered about here on Talk is Jericho today, and we have Bob Mould here, who is a critically acclaimed kind of a pioneering alternative indie rock uh, hero in a lot of ways. My friend Charlie Benanti from Anthrax uh, flipped out when he heard I was talking to you. I don't know if you, if you ever heard <laughs> oh, yes. about him. Yeah, that's that's they're great guys. That's super cool. Yeah, Bob, of course, was one of the founders of Husker Do, and Charlie had a cover band called Do Husker. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you yeah. knew that, so <laughs> yes, but I did. Which is really cool uh, and lots to discuss there. But but 
It's also something that I'd always heard your name bandied about with with WCW back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you were kind of one of the creative uh, in the booking team and all that other stuff too. So I'm very surprised that we've never actually met each other along the way. I know, I know. I think we have a lot of um, mutual acquaintances. I think Damien from uh, up. I don't know. Can we yes. use that word on your? Yes. Okay. Yes, we can. Yes. Yeah. Super cool guy. And yeah, I am super surprised. You know, we met very briefly once. Where? I think we met back in 96, 97. You were in the box doing local promos at one of the, I think it was either Baltimore or somewhere that Gary Jester, who was my, who was my connection at WCW, you were in doing local promos. And I think I popped my head in the box and just said, Hey, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. Uh, Just, I I love, uh, you mentioned Damien from, from up and that's when we were touring in Australia. Uh, It was called the uh, sound wave tour. And there's probably, I don't know, 20 or 30 bands and Metallica was headlining and Metallica, uh, Damien went up to Lars and he was like, oh, I'm such a huge fan, Lars. And Lars like, oh, that's really cool. What's the name of your band? He goes, oh, it's f***ed up. And Lars is like, wow, you probably don't get a lot of placement and shelf space at Walmart with that name, do you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a self-regulating name for sure. Exactly, exactly. Oh, but man. yeah, like you mentioned being around in, in WCW and, and, and let's just kind of jump right in it because i find it very interesting uh and and i'll put you uh and throw my name in there now we got billy corrigan uh, mm-hmm. andy williams from every time i die you're talking about guys that are very successful in music and very successful in wrestling and kind of delving into both so husker do and, and, and sugar and all your legendary solo work aside and, and the influence that you have how did you end up working for wcw and what, what was your mindset in doing that well i guess a quick history i i grew up in uh, upstate new york up near the adirondacks so as you know lifelong wrestling fan as a kid i watched you know the two montreal promotions at the time that were in the you know in a sort of war against each other you know the rougeaus and the Bashans. And, uh, you know, watched, watched WWF as a kid as well, read the magazines. And then when I went to the Twin Cities to go to, to go to college in the fall of 78, I started going to the AWA house shows at the Civic Center in St. Paul. I got to meet Jim Melby, who was one of the preeminent historians of the wrestling business, worked on, uh, worked with, uh, Norm Keitzer on those magazines got to be friends with Jim and slowly he uh, brought me around to the matches and eventually had me doing ring announcing and, you know, sort of explained how the whole business worked. Introduced me to Gary Jester, who in the fall of 99 gave me a call and said, we might have a spot open for a creative consultant at WCW. Would you be interested in coming in? And I said, are you kidding? Of course. I don't know what I can do to help, but I'll try. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got in. So was this something that, that you had delved into before? Um, what kind of proclivity had you shown shown Gary to be you know, on the booking team and be a writer there? Well, I mean, Gary and I knew each other since 86, and I would come down to a lot of the shows in D.C. and Baltimore and down to Atlanta – you know, through the 90s, and uh, Gary would bring me around to sit with Ole Anderson, with Jim Hurd, and mostly with Jim Barnett. 
And uh, a lot of times I would sit with Mr. Barnett up in the uh, up in the 200 section at the Baltimore Arena, and he would just pick my brain about how does this look? What do you think? How does this? You know, that kind of stuff. So, you know, it was. I think it was years and years a slow accumulation of you know my mega fandom towards wrestling and you know sort of getting educated by certain people. So when this when it, when the spot opened up, I was like, yeah, I'll come in. But you know when I got there, I was like, oh, okay, I didn't know how this this is how it worked. <laughs> and, and we'll get into it. But first, I'll tell us a little about uh, about about Jim Barnett and Jim Hurd, but obviously uh, two huge characters in, in the business and I never met either one of them. Uh, Barnett, very much uh, one of the most flamboyant characters in wrestling history. Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Jim was Jim, Jim Barnett was a great guy. I mean, he, you know, he was uh, such a fixture in the Atlanta wrestling scene and in the community. I mean, going back to the, you know, going back to president Carter and he was, I think nominated to be like the head of the arts council or something. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, Jim was, uh, was a real character just, you know, sort of had amazing stories about the business and sort of a side note, you know, I got close enough with Jim where I tried to convince him to allow me to do his life story while he was still living. And it, it never came to, to fruition, but uh, you mean to write, write, write his book sort of thing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Wow. So did you have any, uh, any stories with Jim while you were watching the matches or anything like that? Cause he was, you said he was picking your brain. Did he want to know kind of like what the everyman educated fan was thinking? Exactly. How how things were coming across. Like, what do you think of this guy's outfit? What do you think of his moveset? You know, uh, Jim watching me, watching the crowd respond and saying, oh, see, they they like that. They like this. They like that. You know, it was sort of a, in a slow apprenticeship that I didn't even know was happening at the time. I was just like, oh, I'm just sitting watching the matches with, with Jim Barnett, who, you know practically invented television wrestling in a way. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, and once again, too, just kind of had seen and done everything. So and would you give him uh, certain pointers and tips? Like, what would you really say? Oh, no, no. I was mostly listening to his responses to, to any kind of observations I made. I, uh, you know, I, I knew Jim's background and never once did I think that anything I was saying would ever you know penetrate the business i was just again just sitting there talking i got you i guess i just asked i guess it was he asking like like what good guys do you like or what bad guys do you like or that sort of a thing yeah you know that kind of you know that kind of stuff just how people were coming off like oh do you think those do you think that outfits too much do you think you know is that connecting with you do you you know the people that you watch wrestling with do they do they like, you know, good workers? Do they like good characters? You know, just mm. sort of gen- general things like that. And I I think during that period, and that was, that was you know, 96, 97, I think right when I popped in and said, hey, to you in the box, I think Terry Taylor was the booker at the time. Yeah. And Kevin Sullivan would have been working with Terry. So, yeah. So those are the, you know, eventually those are the guys that I ended up, you know, working with when, when I did get in, in the fall of 99. So you mentioned, so, so a, a position opened up and who was in charge of, of the book at that point in time in WC because I was, I left probably right before that, I think. I think, yeah, you left in late summer, I believe July, August is when you went up and started yes. with the E. Yeah, yeah, I started I, in August, but I was done in about June, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So I can't, I think Eric Bischoff had just taken a sabbatical. And I think Bill Bush, who might have been in more of the administrative side, got the EVP spot. 
Right. And uh, Gary brought me in and I met with Bill and I met with JJ Dillon and they were just like, yeah, start today. We have a pay-per-view. Come sit in the truck with me. <laughs> hmm. And, <laughs> and that's totally on Gary Jester's uh, vouching for you. Yep. That was, that was Gary vouching for me. And I guess me having been around, you know, again, you know, from Oli to, to Kip to, you know, spending a lot of time with Jim Ross and a little bit with Jim Hurd and a lot of time with Jim Barnett. I guess that was enough. And, and maybe, you know, maybe my background in the business that I'd been a touring musician and knew what travel was like and sort of, you know, knew that, you know, knew the kind of stuff that, you know, you know, as well about the music business, you know, how to count right, the house sure. by looking and so I guess that was uh, that was enough. So I think sept whatever the September pay per view that was when I came in and just sat in the truck with with Bill Bush and you know he was like, "What are you seeing? What are you thinking?" And I remember one of the matches on that show was uh, was Sid against uh, Chris Benoit, and that was my you know my moment to say you know I think Chris is the future of the company. Right. And then I think the next day might have been television in Chapel Hill or Winston, wherever the Dean Dome is. I think that's Chapel Hill. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And they just, you know, that that day they were like, well, why don't you talk to, you know, let's bring in a couple of the guys and try pitching some ideas to them. So the first person they bring in, of course, is Hogan. <laughs> and you can imagine how anything I said went over. <laughs> well, let's let's back up because I really do want to delve into this and hear about this because I know how WCW was at that time frame, and also too because I've been there myself. I know how guys can respond to a quote unquote outsider. What does this guy ever know? All you know, he's a musician. Well, what does that mean? Because usually when you, especially with in modern times in WWE, for example, when you are pitching to be a writer, you have to write out a couple gimmick storylines. You know, you're kind of auditioning for the writing position. You show us some pieces, show us this, show us that. And, and you didn't have to do that. So you're getting thrown right in there. Uh, in the mm-hmm. deep end with with both legs <laughs> yes you know as far as far as like pitching stories or ideas like that i didn't fancy myself as somebody that would sit down and write a show what you know my strengths chris were you know you know i'm a pretty organized guy despite the amount of time it took for me to get set up for today <laughs> <laughs> you've got roadies to do that i know yeah see i'm see i'm away from i'm away from the studio so i'm short-handed but uh pretty good with organizational stuff really good with time and math and keeping stuff in order so you know once i got into a booking meeting that used my first booking meeting i quickly realized I should just be listening all the time, taking as many notes as I can. And, you know, the stuff where I, where I thought I could help and where I think I did eventually help was continuity, remembering storylines, remembering things that had happened two weeks ago, that if we do it this week, that's going to undo everything we told people two weeks ago. You know, that, that kind of stuff, right. more keeping, keeping tabs on continuity. Which is very important, by the way. Very important. Yeah. So, you know, my first day in the war room was, uh, let me go around the table and see if I can remember, Nash Sullivan, Nash Sullivan, Dusty, Graham, Craig, Annette, maybe Tony Shabani. 
and I just started taking notes. <laughs> so Craig, Craig and Annette were kind of the production people, almost like um, the Kevin Dunn's, if you will, for people that 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 know who he is. And then you mentioned Mike Graham, and then you know, like you said, Sullivan's in there, Nash is in there, Dusty Rhodes. So, so kind of tell us how 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 the war room meetings would go at that point in time, because this is post Eric Bischoff leaving. Mm-hmm. So Nash and I would assume Sullivan and maybe Dusty are kind of leading the charge at that point. Yeah, I mean Dusty was definitely the foreman. You know, he was sort of trying to keep things moving in a direction that he had in mind. Um, he seemed very confused as to why I was there. <laughs> he was like. He was like, who the fuck is this guy? What's your, what's your name? What's your name again? You know, go get my lunch. I'm like, and it's almost like two. It almost, it, it's almost, almost like it's a gimmick name. Bob mold. Yeah. Like, I'm Bob mold from a punk band. Well, of course you are. What kind of a name is Bob mold? Right. Yeah. I know. First time I met Vern Gagne, he said the same thing. Change that name. No money. <laughs> it's my real name. <laughs> I'm like, no bias. I know. <laughs> So, you know, it was mostly just sitting and, and listening and learning. And I think Nash, you know, I had met Sullivan before. He knew, you know, we were acquaintances and, you know, meeting, you know, meeting Kev, you know, we would, you know, for lunch break, he would say, you know, what, what's your thing, man? What are you doing? You know, what's your, what's your bit? Like, I know you're a musician. I said, well, I do this and I do this. And I used to know these guys. He goes, oh, so you sort of know the business. I said, well, I, I know it from a fan perspective. Mm-hmm. I said, I just want to try to help. So you guys let me know what, what I can do to help. And I guess it came down to, I had really good handwriting. I could do math on the fly. So, <laughs> you know, and I, and I sort of, you know, I sort of knew, I knew, I knew enough angles about, you know, from the history of the business and that I didn't come off like a complete, you know, pop culture writer. You know? I, I do. I do love that. For all the people that are going into school and creative writing classes and and literature to become a wrestling writer, it's more important to have good penmanship and and be good and quick with math. <laughs> is what Bob is telling us. Well, they, they where 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 they eventually put me. Well, it did come in handy. So <laughs> right, of course, of course. So, what were kind of some of the big storylines that were going on at the time in in that era of WCW? Well, I mean, that was you know that was supposed to be the sting turn right off the bat the first week, and you know I was like, so is he going to go out and cut one of those promos where? He sort of plays up to the fans and then he looks around and says, what a dump and, right. you know, get that kind of heat on the local audience and try to set up a tag match at the end of the night. And, you know, that was, I guess that was the biggest storyline. I mean, Goldberg was still, you know, I think they were still trying to rehab Bill from his loss, you know, the December prior, you know, there was all the, you know, all the guys that I thought were the, the, you know, the, the future of the company, you know, had you been there, Chris, you would have been one, but you know, Dean and Eddie and Chris and Perry and Ray and Conan, who were the six guys that I eventually would end up doing stuff with, you know, they, they would, they would come up with their ideas and bring them to me and say, can you take these to the guys and see if this would help. And, and with, and with those guys you know, they had really fun storylines, just, you know, conflict within the six of them. And, it seemed like at the time everybody was happy, like, yeah, give them 20, 30 minutes to do this stuff every three hours. And, you know, 
to me, it felt like it, they were treading water, but at least I was working with them and trying to get the stuff to to Nash and Sullivan and, you know, sort of lobby for them. So how was, and what was, what was the time frame you were there? You mentioned probably from about late 99 until mid 2000. So I was there, you know, I came in, everybody that I mentioned was in booking committee, I guess at the time. I think Dusty got let go a couple of weeks later. And then within a couple of weeks of that, Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara came in from WWE. Yeah. And that's when everything, you know, structurally started to change. You know, it went from a, you know, a very a short format to a very long, detailed format every week. Right. You know, the 16 segs, you know, 210 components, everything timed out, you know, in chunks of 20 seconds. You know, pretty much how shows, I think, are, I imagine they're still done the same way, maybe with less, less long interview language but because i know how it was like um in wwe when russo and ferrara left and it was a pretty big uh blow at least to the locker room mm. uh the only guys that didn't really sell it were, were pat patterson and vince mcmahon who <laughs> yeah. were like you guys have no idea you know it's really not as bad as you might think what was it like when you heard from your end in that writing room that Vince Russo was coming in, was everybody super excited? Did they feel like it was a big coup to land, you know, Vince's quote unquote right hand man, even, you know, at least we thought he was. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I'm not even sure who did the deal with him. I'm guessing it would have been JJ Dillon would have been the conduit for that. And I remember he told us these guys are coming in and we're all very, you know, we're all really excited. Let's try to make them, you know, let's really try to invite them in. And, you know, they've done great things up there and that's what everybody did. And, you know, they came, they came in, I think they had Bill Banks with them as well. And I yep. think, uh, I think Terry Taylor would have been right behind those three that left immediately. So, you know, there was a lot of new people coming in and, uh, it was a bit, it was a big philosophical change. You know, Chris, I guess for me, I'm like a, you know, my sort of my philosophy about the business is, you know, you know, wins and losses matter. Work rates, real important. Character right. development's really important. Continuity is really important. That kind of stuff. And, you know, the WWE, you know, I think Vince Russo style was maybe a little more controversial a little more you know not jerry springerish but a lot of that kind of like real heavy on character conflict right and 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 i was sort of like well you know i'll do i'll do what i can to help me this isn't what i would do but i'm only here to help and uh right away the first week russo put me a gorilla so <laughs> so kind of talk about a little okay, let's, let's back up just a little bit before we get into the rooster i love this because you're just getting thrown in yeah you know but because you well, let me ask you this first how was your experience being in a in a rock and roll band and you know having to go with the flow as as we all know the you know amp breaks down and you got to continue the show whatever happens how yeah. did that help you or hinder you in, in, in pro wrestling and live TV. I mean, once I, you know, once I got into gorilla, you know, or, or with the whole thing, I mean, I have had a lot of stuff, like you said, amps break, you know, somebody gets hit with a bottle, you know, something, you know, whatever happens right. at rock shows or especially at festivals, as you know, when, when stuff starts flying around, you're, you're really no sound check, no mercy, just make it up as you go. I had done decades of heavy travel, the lifestyle, 
I mean, the rock and roll lifestyle is pretty crazy, but the pro wrestling lifestyle was a was a a bolder version, I think, of it at that time. <laughs> right, so, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, I, so I mean, it was just you know, I guess I just had you know, I could think on my feet. I could I could react pretty quickly. I could keep a lot of things straight at once. So, I mean, that was I think that's why they probably sat me at Gorilla and said, "Here, you you talk to Keith and you talk to the refs and listen to the agents." <laughs> So back before Russo came, let's just get the writing room straight. Who was basically leading uh, leading the, the, the meetings? And was there somebody that was more dominant with the ideas than others? Well, I think after Eric took his sabbatical, I think Dusty sort of wanted the spot and maybe thought he had the spot. And I think, you know, Nash and Sullivan were... You know, I think I think I think Nash was pretty strong with ideas at the time, and definitely, you know, seemed to have, you know, a lot of say over who was going to get elevated and who was who was going to stay where they were, and you know, stuff like that. So I say it was Dusty, and then Dusty went home, and then it was Nash, and then and then you know, within a couple of weeks, Vince and Ed were in. So that was the, uh, and all of a sudden, it was it was pretty much Vince, Ed, and Bill were writing the shows with input from others. So what was the, the biggest difference between Russo coming in at that point in time than when he wasn't there? He brought an entirely new level of organization to it. Again, just, you know, from the format end, because I was, you know, before before and after Vince came in, I, Russo came in, I was the guy that was running both sides of it. You know, we'd be timing the shows. You know, and it's those first five segments, and then you got to come back seg six, you know, one minute before the top of the hour, rain <laughs> or shine. So, so you know, we're plugging all of these components and segments in, and my job was to come from the wrestling side where the stories were and, and then go to Craig and Annette in production and say, okay, I know we got to hit all these things, but this is the match that we really need to put the time in on. So this one, you know, we're going to give these guys 11 before a commercial break or, you know, five, and then we'll go to a break and then we'll come back for, you know, for go home. And so I was, that was where my math and my organization came in as I was, you know, basically running from the agent's room over to the Xerox room up until, you know, 7.55 PM right. Eastern every night, <laughs> <laughs> hoping, hoping that the format they dropped on my desk sometime during seg two would look like what we had talked about at the readings. <laughs> so what, what was your job at Gorilla? Uh, Gorilla. <laughs> I mean, Timing? I was listening. Yeah, yeah, timing. Just yeah, I love that you had Keith on. Keith was one of my was so so helpful to me because Keith and I were talking all through the show. I'd be at Gorilla, and for people who, I mean, that's the go position is sort of where everything is. That's the last stop before people go through the curtain, like the command center. Command center. So I would be on the headset with Keith through the entire show as we're walking through all the components. I would update him with any last minute agent notes or requests or something that didn't get blocked earlier in the day, say, watch for this after this. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, people, everybody would come by and what's my line. I'd be, you know, Sid says ruler of the universe, hit Jeff Jarrett music and go. Right. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> so that was kind of, so you were working with Keith Mitchell to kind of help produce the show essentially then. Yeah. At, at go position, I had our monitor. I had your show on with time code, you know, cause we're, as soon as you guys go to commercial, we, you know, I'd pass it to one of the refs, you know, they're in commercial, go, go, go. <laughs> Wasn't that amazing how that was back in those days. And that I remember, especially in WCW, 
was one week our pyro went off like a minute before Raw's pyro went off and they were literally celebrating like, yes, we did it. We did it. And it's like that much of a direct like comparison between the two shows. Oh my God. Yeah. Those, that was a crazy time in wrestling. I can't imagine there's, there was anything like it before. And I don't know if it's like that now, but man, it was, uh, yeah, very, very competitive. So so that was, yeah, that was me at Gorilla was, you know, if something, if a segment was running late, you know, if it looked like we weren't going to make the crossover exactly so, I'd have to sort of get with Keith and say, uh, we're sending, you know, we've got floor people telling them to rap seg five and they're not rapping. What are we going to do? <laughs> so what would you do in cases like that? Sometimes I'd have to fudge time on the fly. Sometimes we would just have to sort of fade out of, you know, somebody's, you know, too long interview and so that we could come back and hit the crossover because that was that was really key especially you know that eight fifty eight thirty. we had to we had to hit that right to to get up get people hooked before you guys came on was there ever any kind of you know sometimes a gorilla position there's some heated moments if somebody's time gets cut or if something goes wrong were you ever witnessed anything like that yep i'd be in the middle of that and i just go please please speak with your agent <laughs> any examples well i mean when vince and ed came in they they did give a lot of time to i guess filthy animals and all those guys and i think that's when shane douglas stepped up and became the talker for all the guys yeah and and you know shane's you know great promos really really hard to get the time under control sometimes Uh, (laughs) (laughs) i mean he was great he was great but it would be for some for some reason a lot of shane stuff ran a little over and it was you know we just try to you just try to work with it so who were some of the guys there like you mentioned you know dean and chris and eddie and those type of guys who were some of the other guys that were there that that were that were on the show that you were like how could they not be pushing this guy or girl how could they not see how how much potential this this person has to be a main event draw? Well, they, I mean, early on, early on in Nash and Sullivan said, well, who do you think is, you know, who do you, th- who do you think we're overlooking? And I remember there was uh, a young guy named Lash LaRue uh, from Louisiana. And I, and you know, and I watched him, I thought, you know, maybe he's, he's a good worker. He's got a little bit of charisma. Maybe if we try something with him and see if it flies. And I, I think we were in, we might've been in Baton Rouge for a nitro and or a thunder. And I said, I said, give him a win and let him go talk and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And they gave him a win and Oakland went in and, you know, held the stick and he lash cut a great little promo. And everybody's like, wow, we didn't know he had that. And I was like, well, let's maybe find some stuff for him. Right. Uh, you know, later, later on, one of, one of my main projects was working with Vampiro later, you know, in early 2000, you know, right. You know, again, he's a you know big music fan, and I thought he had a lot to offer. and And his life story is terribly interesting. You know, especially when he went to Mexico. and i I wanted to do a series of you know personality profiles on him to to really try to make him more of a more of a, a central figure. And uh, he had a wild story, and some of it wouldn't fly by standards and practices. You know, so right. <laughs> so if we had told the truth, they probably wouldn't have allowed it to you know, some of it to air, but, uh, you know, he was somebody that, I, you know, sort of, especially with Sullivan, I pointed out, I said, I think he, you know, I think you could really do something with him. 
Was it frustrating at all? Because I'm thinking back to that time period. And obviously, WCW had another year or two of a run, but 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 the business was going down. Show quality was, in a lot of ways, I remember Thunder at that point in time was really bad for some reason. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, was it frustrating for you? Obviously, going back to what you were talking about with, with Jim Barnett being a fan and just seeing these things and knowing, like, we could make this so much better. How can I try and get my voice across? And, and were they even trying to listen at that point? Or what was the reason why things were going the way they were, in your opinion? You know, one one thing with, you know, with, you know, I know people, ha- you know, Vince Russo is a very polarizing character in the business. I think the things that Vince Russo brought to the business is he, I think first and foremost, he always tried to find something for everybody. Like, even if you were, you know, even if you were a new, you know, a, a new wrestler or you were down lower in the card than you thought you should be, he always found stories for people. He did. Then even WWE when I first started there too. Yeah, and 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 I think I think there's a balance between finding something for everybody and trying to feature everybody, because then you know nothing's ter- you know sometimes if everybody's special, nobody's special. So I, I, I thought maybe it got a little too character heavy. Um, I think it was hard to get. I think we were having a hard time getting clean finishes. Uh, I mean, there would be times we read the show or we'd be in booking and it'd be like, let's do this against this and let's put this story on it. And, and then it would be, okay. And what's, what's the finish you go? I don't care. That's up to the agents. Yeah. And I'd be, and then it would just be lots of, you know, lots of interference, lots of non finishes. And I'm like, can't we just get one, two, three, and then everything happens. (laughs) Yeah. This, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with, you know, there's nothing wrong with all that heat after a finish, but we, it was just getting hard to get clean finishes. You know, we were doing, I think there, there was tournaments that didn't make any sense where the mixed gender world championship tournaments where people would get eliminated and they get reinserted. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is not the G1. <laughs> <laughs> this is not top of the super juniors at all. <laughs> so. You know, it's funny. Um, I, I think you're right about that to where and I think Russo's booking philosophy, which was very successful for a certain period of time, was more about the, the crash TV more about the angles and the twists and the turns to where the wrestling became secondary. And and I think a lot of ways that that attitude still permeates the WWE to this day. Well, let's put Bob Mould and Chris Jericho against each other. People are going to see it. Well, what's the finish? I'll just do a DQ. It doesn't yeah. matter, but it does matter. And you know, that's one thing I think that we do fairly well in AW is yes. 99.9% of the time there is a finish. And like you said, you can always do whatever aftermath you want or story you want to tell, but at least give people who are investing in that part of the story a distinct finish to it. Yeah. And I was so happy when I saw the initial sort of, you know, philosophy of AEW where it was going to be clean finishes and records mattered. And, you know, people could be out because it's such a great, it's such a great, I mean, wins and losses are such an easy way to tell a story. I mean, you know, people like Bill Watts were great with that. So it, it, yeah. It's the emphasis of, 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 any sport that you watch, you know, or any, any TV show you watch, you want to see if the good guy or bad guy wins. That's just kind of why we get invested in the first place. Exactly. So, you know, so I think when you ask about, you know, things that may have contributed to the descent of WCW, I think, you know, just little things like that in and of themselves, maybe they don't seem like a, you know, a, a company breaker, but when you get a lot of them piled up, 
doing too many tag matches back to back. I remember, you know, JJ Dillon was always like, why are we doing so many tag matches back to back? You know, just little stuff. And I'd be like, JJ knows the business. So I'm going to listen to, you know, sure. yeah, that, that makes sense. And so it, working there for, for like you mentioned, you were more of like a detail guy, uh, keeping the cohesiveness on the show. So it wasn't like you were writing uh, promos with anybody or, or, or writing storylines. You were there mostly as a clerical uh, organizational guy. Yep. Yep. And if I was, and if somebody asked me something, then I would give my opinion, but gotcha. I was the new, I was the new guy and I, I knew better, you know? So what was going on with you at the time musically? Were you taking a hiatus? Oh man. At the time uh, in 1998, I had put out a, uh, what I thought at the time was going to be my last guitar record called gotcha. the last dog, last dog and pony show. And I was going to step away from the business uh, for you know for a couple different reasons. And in, in 1998, I think a lot of the a lot of the guitar rock, you know, that maybe I was part of early on, had gotten sort of tired. You know, the the main thing for me was I had spent 20 years on the road as sort of a rock and roll guitar musician, and I was living in New York City at the time. And uh, you know, through all of this, you know. Through all this time with touring and traveling, I, you know, as a gay man, had never really sort of dealt with my sexuality or integrated myself into the gay community. So I was doing a lot of that in New York City at the time. I was listening to a lot of electronic music, going out to clubs and living a very different life than I had ever lived. And, you know, it was a part of my personal growth that I hadn't, you know, I hadn't addressed or hadn't experienced. Right. So that was what was going on. And then I get this call to, to join the wrestling life <laughs> so, so it was a complete switch all across the board oh, oh my god a couple different switches there it was like multiple <laughs> reinventions in a year it was <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's it's interesting too when you talk with you know gay men and, and gay women in 2022 you're talking 1998 but it might as well have been you know even still 100 years ago as far as how that was you know your sexuality was viewed by society and entertainment and, and all that sort of thing. It was still almost like just at the beginning of opening up, right? Around that late 90s yes. period. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was born in 1960 and I started, you know, started getting on a stage in 1979 and you know, the, the eighties were tough for, you know, I mean, for, for gay folk, you know, the, the beginning of HIV AIDS and, you know, a decade of that, you know, stigmatizing from the, you know, from the evangelicals telling us that this was our, our, our fate and our punishment. No fun, right. no fun at all. <laughs> uh, none. And, and, you know, having spoken, you know, and having spent time with people like Jim Barnett, who were that is like even generations earlier, who was flamboyantly gay in a lot of ways. Yeah. But never out. <laughs> yeah. Never out. Exactly. Right. So, but, 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 but it was, He's like, do you think people know? I'm, I'm like, I think so. <laughs> I think so, too. Right. It's okay. It's 1999. It's okay. But, uh, you know, the 90s things got a little bit better. People started, you know, I, I think, you know, with the, you know, with Clinton and I think, you know, the, especially the, the directions that rock music, you know, specifically, you know, a group like Nirvana when, you know, Kurt Cobain is so you know, such a messenger for the community. You know, I think things really started to open up in a pop culture sense, not sure. strictly because of Kurt, but it, it was a big, big, made a big contribution. And, you know, now, you know, now a couple decades later, there's, you know, lots of equity and, you know, you know, people are, people are much more understanding, I think, 
you know, mostly. And, I agree. you know, for AEW, I mean, it's, it's great that it seems like it's a really inclusive company. Yeah, all and, inclusive. Right? Yeah, and people people aren't uh, people don't get worked into crazy storylines because of their sexual preference. So right. That's yeah, really yeah. it's really cool to really cool that it's that it's, it has come so far. So we've we've done a show in the past on on Chris Canyon. He was a friend of quite a few guys and a very influential as well. But once yeah. again, v- very much I think tortured in in being you know, kind of secretive and in the closet, if that's what you want to say. Did you ever have any uh, encounters with Chris? What did you think of his work at that point in time at WCW? Uh, just, ca- you know, just casually, you know, saying, hey, uh, yeah. I th- I think I remember that would have been one of the, I think one of the times when I was in the in the back with Terry Taylor and Kevin Sullivan back in 97, they'd be like, what do you think of Canyon? What do you think of his look? What do you think of those boots? What do you think the way he's got them laced? You know, just that kind of that kind of stuff and, <laughs> you know because he didn't have like these big sort of like offset laces you know everybody else used to have black boot black lace yeah he might them. i don't even know i don't remember that i'll have to check it out <laughs> but it would the be laces. something like it, it'd be something <laughs> like that but um but i never never spent any time with chris personally but he you know seemed like a nice guy when i would just yeah hey in the hallway so great performer as well yes so what kind of led to to the end of your stay uh, in in WCW? Well, there was uh, a couple things happened. I stepped away briefly for a couple weeks in the middle of a seven seven month period. It was uh, it was Starcade '99 in DC. It was Brett and Goldberg, and that was you know with Piper's ref, and that's when Brett got kicked. Oh right. And uh, the next night, I think we were in Salisbury, Maryland at Wicomico. And that was the bring back the bring back the NWO night. And that was when Bill had the gimmick spark plug and tried to put his hand through the limo. And that didn't work out right so well. Right through the window, right? So that was, I was just like, what is going on here? This is, this is not terribly safe. And then the following <laughs> right. week. Yeah, I was like, what? And then the following week, I think we were, uh, Nitro was at the Houston Astrodome, and it was one of those very cold nights in Houston. We're in the back, you know, the Astrodome, for people who haven't been there, in the back, it's super wide transit lanes inside the building for semis and stuff to move around. And it got cold enough that there was black ice. And and one one of the segments called for Brett, who had a pretty bad concussion, to I think peel away in a Lincoln Continental that sort right. of and it started to spin out of control in the back of the Astrodome. And at that point, at the you know, we wrapped up the show and I went to JJ and I said, JJ, I'd love to stay, but this isn't terribly safe. Something really bad is going to happen here. And I don't know if I want to be around for it. Because you know, things that already happened that year, you know, stunts going wrong is is not a not something I wanted on my resume. And that so. was already after Owen. Owen had had his accident. Yeah, that was early. That was that was in the summer, and you know, we had, yeah, we had already been to the. A side note: we had been to Kansas City in late September, and we did the. That was the match we did, Chris and Brett. Right. Yeah. Now the, the the three segments and bringing Harley in, and I mean that was that was us. That was me and, and Nash and Sullivan doing that. So. Oh, as far as booking that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. That's, yes. That could be that could be probably Brett's best match in WCW, 
and probably the best segment from that era of WCW for sure. Yeah, I thought so as well. And then within two weeks, it was it was Vince and Adbrand. So, yeah, there was a big that was a big change. When you say that was you and 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 Kevin and and Sull- you and Nash and Sullivan that did that, was this you guys getting on the phone and saying, "Hey, why don't we do this?" Or how did that match kind of come to be? Well, when we all saw Kansas City on the schedule, it was Great. you know hard not to think about something. You know, hard, hard not to think about what, you know, the tragedy with Owen what and, do we what do, we, yeah. and what, what can we do? And, you know, we thought that that was a, that would be a classy way to showcase some professional wrestling in the face of everything that had happened earlier in the year. Um, I mean, we even talked about doing things like trying to throw, trying to come back in black and white with Harley and then going to color after the, after oh, the ring wow. announcements, you know, just like, that's cool. you know, little things that would, you know, things that would make a difference to make it stand out from everything else that was happening. But, um, but yeah, anyway, so Astrodome, Brett, black ice, I go home. Uh, and then I was away for a couple weeks and then I got a call and they said, well, Vince Russo went home. I was like, Oh, what happened? He said, they, they said, well, he didn't want to work with, with the rest of the committee and uh, there's a lot of everything's up in the air. We're going to give Sullivan the book. Do you want to come back and help? Mm. And I said, if we turn it down a little bit, yeah, you know, no, no more crazy life threatening stunts. So I came back, I got brought back for the sold out pay-per-view. I think that was a Sunday. I got flown into Cincinnati maybe. Mm Mm-hmm. For the Sunday for the booking meeting, and they were Saturday night for the booking meeting. They still didn't know what to do because you know Russo had left, and you know Brett was down, Bill was down. You know, people were dropping fast, and it was like, "What do we do? We don't have a champ. We don't have anything." I said, "Why don't we go back to Chris and Sid?" Oh wow! Because they're the two guys. They're the two guys that are at the top. And I said, "And maybe this is the time we got to take a chance on Chris." And that's exactly kind of what yeah. they did right yeah that's and it, i think it fell and that was in the room with 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 sullivan and taylor and graham and nash and bill bush and jj and everybody said okay let's try it so the next night we did the 20 plus minutes with chris going over sid clean with except with a little bit of the foot outside in case we had to get out of it I mean, do you right. remember the finish to that? It was the cross face and Sid had a had a foot halfway under the ropes, but we didn't see it. Yes. So I didn't know that that was planted at the time and I didn't know why it was planted. I guess it made sense a couple days later. And that was stuff that, <laughs> and that was and that was stuff I didn't know. And that when that stuff happened the next day, that crushed me personally. I'm like, I come and back. And this is of course when there was whatever illicit threats were made against Chris and then Chris and Eddie and Dean and Perry we're all basically able to walk right out straight onto raw, which still blows my mind to this day that that happened. You and me both. <laughs> I, I was sick. I was sick to my stomach. I mean, I'm just sitting there looking at, you know, I'm looking at JJ going, Chris, we gave Chris the belt. Why is this happening? He goes, I don't know, but it's happening. And Bill Bush said, let them go. I said, can we let, can we not let them go up there? Can you just send them over to Japan? Give Chris the belt, go over to Japan, say they left the company, say they're yeah. upset give us some time to blow over. That was my idea. These guys hijacked our belt and they went to Japan with it. And I figured leave them over there for a month and then bring them back. We will be able to make something out of it. But sure. Bill Bush 
was dead set. If they don't want to be here, we should let them go. We have enough guys. We'll make it work. And I thought, man, that just gutted like half our roster. Yeah. Well, just from a, from a morale standpoint as well, because those guys were the heart and soul at that point in time and everybody knew it. Yes, everybody knew it. And that was my, my number one refrain with everybody there was these guys, these guys, these guys. But eh. do you, do you have any idea why they were able to just walk away? All I know, Chris, is that Bill Bush said, if they don't want to be here, they don't have to be here. I think Bill maybe viewed it as, I just don't want anybody telling me how to, how to run my, how to run my business, telling me that, you know, that Sullivan's going to hold them back or whatever, all that, you know, all that stuff is between those guys and the locker right, room, sure, agents and wrestlers. That's not, that's not my, my beef, mm-hmm. but I was just like, I can't picture a company without these guys but that was that was what they wanted to do so so we were in sort of a nutty scramble after that to try to make sense of everything and so was that still were you still there for a little while after that was that another thing where you're like i don't want to be here anymore no i i I stayed for another three months and at that point at that point it was kevin sullivan booking it was me and ed and Tony Schiavone would be in on booking. He he would come in and out with injury reports and you know contract updates. You know JJ just said this guy's out in ten days. What are we are we going to write him off TV or you know that you know the yeah. just logistics stuff. You know I, I don't know if it was a coincidence or bad timing, but you know when morale went down after all the guys left, the next wave was people showing up with doctor notes. You know. Meaning, meaning I have an injury. I can't oh. work. Oh wow! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is going to get infinitely harder. <laughs> yeah. So that was kind of the writing on the wall for you, then. You know, I I stayed for three more months, and then it sounded like they wanted everybody wanted to go in yet another direction, and I think that was the the R and B direction, the Russo Bischoff combo. Oh, right. So that was, that was late March. So we, I think we wrapped up TV and everybody said, are you going to stay on? I said, I, I don't know. I said, I think my time might be done here. I, I said, I don't think my ideas are going to set, set well next to Vince Russo's and I don't know Eric Bischoff. So I don't know if this is going to be a place for me. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing, I'm guessing they wanted to have a clean start. So I stepped aside at that point. And I think that would have been, God, the last show might have been somewhere in Florida, might have been uh, late March. And uh, yeah, I just said, I think my work is done here. After uh, Chris and Dean and Eddie left and Perry, uh, when you were there for an extra three months, and, and like you said, you're trying to cobble things back together. Who were some of the younger guys at that point that you were thinking, okay, we got to, this sucks, but it's happened. Let's try and do this. Kidman. Yeah. Hoovy. Uh, we brought in Mike Modest. I think there had been, t- I think Chris Daniels might've come in right after that for a tryout. Mm-hmm. I think that might've been the, was that, was that Chris Daniels and AJ Styles did a tryout together? I, I think, think so. Yeah. I think yeah, so. Yeah. So that, that was sort of where I was, you know, I, I thought Mike Modest was a good, you know, a good worker could be an asset. I remember when right. he came in and, 
you know, Sullivan liked him. I remember Arn, I was sitting in the back with Arn and Arn saw his finish. And he's just like, I ain't taking that. <laughs> Forget what it was. Like some, you know, like some crazy, like Emerald Frozen or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, breaker or <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that was, you know, we we're, tr- you know, trying to, you know, trying to find guys, you know, who were there, who could do stuff, you know, three count were always good for, you know, you know, good for a lot of crazy action, mm. you know trying to do stuff you know we had a lot of lucha guys at the time we're trying to come up with you know i guess tasteful by 2000 standards angles or gimmicks for them you know like los fabulosos (laughs) 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 just you know trying to come up with some stuff in the middle you know right 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 right. you know and then and i think sid was sid was the champ and nash still nash was still there a lot so you know there was you know, Sid and Scott and Jeff, and those were the guys in the top of the mix at the time. Sure, sure. So, I mean, overall, it sounds like you had a pretty good experience as to getting a real taste of, of what the wrestling business is, both from the good and from the bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a wonderful time. I mean, I'm really grateful that I got the opportunity. It It's such a different business now, I think. And, you know, I think, you know, it's sort of an open business. You know, I, everybody everybody knows generally how it works. They, you know, they don't know that whoever's a gorilla has the IFB and, you know, Mickey, to, Mickey tap. Did you get me? Okay. Go home. Right. They maybe don't know all that stuff, but yeah, to, you know, to get thrown into that craziness and have to learn on the fly and, you know, to go from being brought in to getting set at gorilla within six weeks i i don't know how that happened <laughs> and and i guess you could ask keith if i did an okay job i think i did but keith would know so the immortal keith mitchell that's right there was still it was kind of also to that time frame was i i would give it another three or four years before the entire business changed completely because of, especially when when vince went public and when wwf changed to wwe when wcw closed down but around that time there still was you know the bobby heenan's and the and the and the gene okerlands you know having a couple of drinks and going out there a little bit buzzkey and all you know, there still was a little, a little bit, bit. Of- <laughs> <laughs> a little bit yeah i mean bobby and gene were great i mean most of you know most of my most of my buddies at the time there were the agents because i was dealing with them you know you know, with Arn and Mike and Sullivan and Terry and, you know, really trying to be mindful of giving as much time as I could to this, to the good workers, you know, so we could get, get as much quality in ring, you know, as possible. Uh, spent, you know, spent time with Gene, a little bit with Bobby, spent a lot of time with Mike Tanay. You know, we would sort of talk through stuff, mm-hmm. you know, just, you know, cause I think we were both of the same mind about things like, Oh, we're going to get juice and Liger. Let's, you know, let's, let's really try to do something special with him. And then you turn around and he's, you know, getting waffled with a tequila bottle by Hoovy. And, you know, the writers are asking me if I think they're racist and I'm like, well, n- not you, but that's sort of a, sort of a stereotypical finish. It's pretty racist. Cause then I'm sure what they would yes. do after that is then Liger would hit Hoovy with a bowl of rice. Oh, stop. And, well, we're not, I'm not even being, I'm telling, that's what they, would do stop i remember like every 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 time like you know hoovy would come to the ring they'd have ring music that sounded like a mariachi 
And then every Jeez. time one of the Japanese guys came, they'd have kind of the Japanese harps. And I'm like, why are we doing this? They can listen to music, like <laughs> rock music too, you know? Yeah, I was going to say, gosh, you know, Japan is Japan covets jazz and classic rock. Why don't we go that direction? Completely, completely, <laughs> right? Uh, last few things, I could talk to you for two hours, Bob, but I want to just kind of delve into the WC thing. But, but uh, two first of all, what was your, your favorite uh, angle that you were involved in when you were working with WCW that hey, you had some input to, uh, that's question number one. I got three. So that's question number one. All right. Question one. Well, I would say the match with, uh, with Chris Benoit and Bret Hart in Kansas city, you know, sort of the tribute to Owen and, you know, sort of reminding people that yes, professional wrestling can, can be like this, mm-hmm. you know, and to, and to go, you know, to go across three segments at that time was unheard of. And, you know, that was just that that really made me feel good. I was like, wow, they're listening a little bit. You know, everybody's got this great idea and we're, you know, trying to expand it within reason and and, and the way that it played was so good. You know, that you know, people loved that match and you know, like you said, it was probably one of the strongest things from that era. Past that, I remember there's one there was one Wednesday where we were doing a booking meeting and I don't know if I had too much coffee or what. But I just, you know, I think Vince, Vince Russo was like, we got to break up the Nitro girls. We got to get them, you know, we got to do some. So I just started coming up with all of these crazy scenarios, <laughs> like fighting in the penalty box, fighting up in the VIP box, blah, blah, blah. And I think one of the jokes I said is you could do like something on a pole. Like, how about Viagra on a pole? So I love it. I love it. You're on fire. And I'm like, <laughs> Oh, you came up with that. <laughs> I'm like, you got to be kidding. I'm just making shit up. <laughs> I was like, this is not what I would want to do. <laughs> right up Russo's alley, man. You can now take claim for uh, creating oh, the Viagra no. on a pole match. <laughs> I, it was something. I might have thrown something like that out. I'm not taking credit for that. You know me. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take the blame. <laughs> yeah, the blame, right? <laughs> what uh, besides the the Chris and, and Brett? What was your favorite match that you ever saw uh, when you were working in WCW or or around that time frame? There was a series of matches again when I I think it was like February March of two thousand. Uh, I had mentioned Vampiro, and I felt like he could be, you know, he could be moved moved up and. You know, and I, I'd say that to Kevin, and Kevin would say, "Yeah, but his stuff looks. His stuff is sort of like, you know, flimsy, floppy." I said, "Well, right. what can we do?" He says, "I'll put him in a three-match series with Finley, <laughs> and that'll <laughs> tighten that'll tighten him up." <laughs> and so, you know, watching watching those matches, watching the evolution, you know, in a matter of weeks, from you know, Vampiro do, do a lot of wild kicks, and you know, you know, maybe lucha-oriented stuff. And then, you know, when Fit got hold of him, it was like, okay, we're going right. to wrestle like this and we're going to lay it in and we're going to work tight and snug and you're going to get it. And he got it really quick. And it was just amazing for me not be, ever being, having any aspirations to be a wrestler, just watching that kind of development in such a short period of time was was really cool. Just to see how somebody could show... Uh someone with more experience can show someone with a little bit less experience, some of the tricks and they can pick it up so quickly. That's always been something I really enjoy about wrestling. Yeah. And that's so important in professional wrestling. I mean, we think about like ECW, I mean, Terry Funk was the reason, right? Sure. You know, so, so when people, you know, when people who have a lot of experience are giving like that, it's, and, and, and you see, you see someone be the recipient of that giving and and their game gets up immediately. That's really cool. 
it's really really great it's like you know being in a band and you know you finally get to work with a great producer right or great musicians and all of a sudden they just say that one little thing yeah you know (laughs) and nobody would ever notice it but then as soon as you're like aha (laughs) so it was cool for me to see that happen in pro wrestling with somebody that i was you know, lobbying for. So that was nice. And lastly, for you, like we mentioned, I mean, you've got so much music history and, and being legit one of the pioneers of kind of, I guess I'd call it the alternative kind of early 90s rock scene. Uh, and Nirvana constantly quoted Husker Du mm-hmm. uh, as an influence. Did you ever have any interactions with, 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 I know you just toured with Foo Fighters. Did you guys ever do any shows with Nirvana? Any interactions with Kurt Cobain? Any insight as, as to what he was like as a, as, as a guy? I brushed up with them a little bit in the summer of 91, just as Nevermind was about to come out. So it's funny. Uh, I used to play a lot in the 80s, and Kurt would come to the shows at the Hub Ballroom in Seattle. And uh, you know, he was a, a big fan of the band. And um, I think it was when they were shopping the demos for Nevermind, looking for a producer. I was in consideration for that, you know, to, oh, to wow. produce the, to, yeah, to produce the record. And, and fortunately I didn't because, you know, but- Butch Vig is such an amazing producer Yeah, and, you know, everything went exactly as it was supposed to. So I'm glad that did not work for me because it, because <laughs> it worked for all of us. Sure. Right? Sure. Sure. Right. 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 right, right. <laughs> a fu- funny story about Seattle and, and your friend, uh, Duff McKagan. Yeah. So first time Hooskers went out to, uh, Seattle in 81, we were staying at this uh, sort of group house, for the, a lot of punkers, and they were getting like fanzines and stuff together. And it was, I think it was Saturday afternoon, and there was one TV. And I think Duff was the was the kid that wanted to watch MTV, and we were like, uh-uh, wrestling's on. Get out of the way. <laughs> so, so I asked him about <laughs> I will. Like, no, 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 no MTV, dude. We're watching <laughs> wrestling, even though it was like it was like Dutch Savage and you know whoever like up in Seattle at the time. Por- yeah, Portland wrestling. Yeah, Don yeah. Owen in Portland and all that. Right. Yeah. Uh, Bob, it's been great talking to you, man, and uh, I- I- I'm sure we can do more stuff in the future because you're a great guest and lots of great experiences to to share for sure. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. And and as far as like stuff coming stuff coming up, uh, Bob Mold Music, B O B M O U L D Music. Uh, that's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, got a lot of touring this year, a lot of solo yes. electric touring. You're going back overseas too, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to do some stuff in North America, April and May, and then June going over to the UK. It looks like I just got some work in Finland as well, some festivals over there, and a bunch of stuff in the fall of 2022 as well, and hopefully start, another, start a new album pretty soon. But yeah, no, it's... Uh, yeah, thanks again, Chris. It's great chatting with you, and and congrats on all the success at AEW. It's been it's been fun to see a pro wrestling company back again. Oh, I'm glad you're enjoying it, man. Like I said, I'm glad we finally crossed paths uh, via the internet because because like I said, I've, I've known your name for years, and now uh, uh, great uh, experiences to share. Thank you. All right, take care, Chris. Thanks. Cheers, man. Thanks, Bob. 